Hola. Hi, Monica. Oh, hey. What did you do to prepare for this episode? Well, I read Lily Analik's book, Hollywood's Eve, listened to a Stravinsky, The Doors Medley, and then played naked chess with a few people. <laughs> oh, And then gosh. I, of course, forgot to bring my mic to this recording, which I'm really sorry about in advance, everyone, if my sound isn't great. I mean, I think we can forgive you. You've been obviously very busy with, you know, other sporting endeavors. What about you? What about me? I got into Eve's Hollywood and Hollywood's Eve and a few other LA-related books, but I still felt like I was missing something. So I decided to go full gonzo and try just a little titch, a little tiny, tiny taste of acid. Mmm, yum. Just a few minutes ago. I don't think it's kicked in yet. Hello, and welcome to season two of Fanfare, a fortnightly flight of fancy in which we plan imaginary dinner parties for cultural luminaries and their dream guests. I'm Monica, a fashion journalist based in Paris. And I'm Emma, an author and co-founder of Greenhouse in Toronto. By popular request, this will be a whole season of dinner parties, and we have some truly exciting guests coming on, both real and imagined. Don't we, Emma? Do we ever. Eve Babbitts has been described as the original artsy it girl by Merle Ginsberg in LA Magazine, as a groupie adventuress by herself repeatedly, and as a kind of dowager groupie scathingly by John Gregory Dunn, Joan Didion's husband, as well as LA's secret genius gushingly by Lily Analik, her biographer, and the woman most responsible for her late life renaissance. But who was she? Who was Eve Babbitts? A Hollywood native and LA celebrant who came of age and helped to canonize the city's louche, hedonistic 60s and 70s. An album cover artist turned party girl, turned social commentator and zeitgeist bottler. Most of all, especially in terms of what will endure, I think, a writer. She was born in 1943 in LA. Her dad was a Brooklyn transplant whose parents, fun fact, met in Toronto in 1907 in what she calls a bohemia that seems to have existed there, of which my movie actress great aunt was a part. She says that her grandfather was a labor organizer and a Zionist, and her grandmother left Russia at the age of 13 because she almost got caught carrying documents for the revolution. She had to stash the papers down an outhouse toilet, and so she came to Canada. Her father was a violin prodigy and played for the LA Philharmonic and for the 20th Century Fox Orchestra. And her mother was a Cajun Catholic from Sour Lake, Texas. I was so curious about Sour Lake, Texas, that I had to go Google it, and it just looks so sour. It's an incredible name. Also, I love this quote from Eve. I was a sinister child, lazy and cynical. (laughs) I know. I know. I had to put that in there. It's so good. She's very funny on the subject of herself. So Eve Babbitts wrote a number of books. Some of them are in the fiction section and others in the memoir section. But she famously said herself that even the ones that are fiction, she just changed the names so that her friends wouldn't get mad. Um, So they are all based on her and her life. They have incredible titles. Her books, for example, Sex and Rage, Advice to Young Ladies Eager for a Good Time. 
and <laughs> LA Woman, which is named after the Doors song. She did not love the Doors' music, but she did sleep with Jim Morrison. And then a collection of stories called Black Swans. I, but she did not love Jim Morrison, did she either? It felt like she was doing him a favor <laughs> by sleeping with him. <laughs> No. She loved his beauty and she loved his the kind of like glimmering halo of fame that he had when she encountered him, which was in 1966. So this is a very young, early right. Jim Morrison who had just come off an entire summer of taking acid. Not unlike some of us in this recording. Not unlike some of us. So we'll get into this with our guest, Alessandra, who is responsible for bringing Eve Babbitts to this imaginary dinner party. But Eve was very open about her sexuality at a time when that was even more shocking than it has been pretty much in every subsequent year. So, you know, she's born in 1943. She's out in the 60s and 70s. And yes, it's a time of free love and all that. But typically, free love, as we've talked about in previous episodes, you know, is freer for the man than for the woman. And here's Eve Babbitts being like, nope, it's free for me too. I'm going to do what I want. And I'm going to call myself a groupie. And I'm going to use the S word. And I'm just going to own it. And as you can imagine, there was a mixed reaction to this behavior. Right. I mean, I think we have a tendency in this day and age to then we'd go behind, we'd go back and in a kind of a revisionist way, label everyone who didn't love her as a kind of like sexist. <laughs> I think there were other reasons. I think she was a bit of a contentious character for several reasons, but certainly her sexual liberation is very appealing in a way. I mean, you got to admire it, especially for her time, as you say. Yeah. Here she is writing about Virginia Woolf and women's lib. So she's a huge reader all throughout her life. And we'll get more into that. But she is a huge, a party girl on the one hand. And, you know, she calls herself an adventurous groupie. But then she's also this complete bookworm and a very genuine lover of people like Virginia Woolf. So she writes in Eve's Hollywood. And then it was her A Room of One's Own that made me believe in women's lib. I never liked it when Gloria the Crass and Gross, that's Gloria Steinem, <laughs> oh was gosh. trying to write about it. It was like reading that radical propaganda where the words are so poorly selected and so divorced from humans that you have to really discount your eyes to be able to let what they're saying get into your head. But when Virginia Woolf does it, it's easy. She's right and they're wrong. <laughs> So her relationship to the feminist wave that was taking place in the 70s was clearly not a straightforward one. Clearly not. But let's get more into this when our guest for today gets here. I think she's she's about to arrive. I better tell you a little bit more about Alessandra Codina. Well, Alessandra is a writer and editor based in Los Angeles. And previously, she was the style director for Departures magazine, for which she covered fashion, travel, wellness and the way they intersect in the luxury space. Before that, she was the online culture editor and fashion news editor at Vogue, American Vogue. And before that, she wrote and edited for Harper's Bazaar, Into the Gloss, and Women's Wear Daily, among other publications. Important side note, Alessandra is an East Coast transplant in LA, her relatively recently adopted home. So it'll be very interesting to get her point of view on all things LA and her imaginary dinner guest, Eve Babbitts. Hello, Alessandra. Thanks for joining us. How are things in sunny LA? Thanks so much for having me. LA is great. You're from the East Coast originally, right? Yeah, I grew up in Boston. I lived in New York for like 12 years and just moved out here 
officially last September, so now a year, but came out for sort of a test run the February before that, so February 2021. May we ask, was it for work, for love, for curiosity, for sunshine? Um, <laughs> kind of all of the above. I mean, it was sort of, I, I love New York. I still do. Had lived there with my partner for, we lived together for probably eight years there. And then it, you know, COVID happened. It was really, it was nice to be in New York for part of that, to really like sort of come together as a community and be there and support the places that we cared about. But then it sort of kept going and we were living in a, you know, big loft in Tribeca, which is great, but also how much time can you really spend just sort of staring at each other in a big box? And, you know, we have a lovely <laughs> dog and we were sort of like, wouldn't it be nice if we could do this, but also be outside. And so there was an opportunity to come out here and we were sort of, you know, like, if not now, when? And so we drove cross country and now we're here. So what part of the city do you live in? And does it feel like a neighborhood in the like kind of Mr. Rogers sense? What's the, <laughs> what's the vibe? <laughs> we, I don't, I really don't know LA very well. I mean, I wish, I wish. I wish it was Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. I love Fred <laughs> Rogers. It, uh, I live in Laurel Canyon, okay. which I oh, love. Oh, amazing. Yes. And actually, there's sort of an Eve tie-in in that at our house, there's some very steep exterior stairs, which allegedly Jim Morrison once fell down and broke his arm on. So there you go. No. Outside way. of your house? Outside of our house, yes. Uh, but every Laurel Canyon house has a Jim Morrison story. Like, it's kind of amazing. Oh, my gosh. It's all like he screwed someone here. He, like, slept on the couch here. He did drugs here. But at our house, he apparently broke his arm and had to cancel a tour. So, you know, iconic. Wow. That'll make you extra careful on the stairs. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it does. Do you know who your house belonged to at the time? I should. There's a lot of, again, there's a lot of rumors. There was a famous drug dealer, I think, in this, <laughs> who lived on our street. And I think this was like a party house. It was very different then. But, you know, those were the days in a sense. Well, those were very much the days. And we want to talk about those days. But first, more about these days. What's the most L.A. thing that's happened to you lately? Oh, my God. That's such a good question. Oh, oh I mean, OK, I'm, I'm going to try and think of how to tell this story without making it incriminating to the people involved. <laughs> um, but I, I got so the most L.A. thing that happened to me is that I got a lymphatic drainage massage from a woman who it turns out was romantically involved with my good friend's asshole ex-boyfriend. Oh no. Oh no. Can't get more small world than that. I mean, the only bad character involved was the, the guy. So that was pretty LA. There's something very intimate about a lymphatic drainage massage as well. Yeah. I can say as a, when did it come up? How did you find out? Um, well, you know, you're like wearing one of these sheer body stocking things. Also, I cannot sure. recommend them more highly. They feel terrific. Like I, a lymphatic drainage massage sounds disgusting. It's not. It's really wonderful. It's like a robot octopus all over your body. Oh, they're all the rage here, here in Paris. Okay, good. So yeah, but I realize like the word drainage on a podcast is kind of disgusting. <laughs> um, but... Let's all say it. Drainage. 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 I mean, foul, <laughs> but good for you. Get that lymph moving, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But let's get back to LA for a second. What do you, <laughs> what do you, 
What do you love about it? Is there anything you're still adjusting to other than the small world massage situation? (laughs) (laughs) So what do I love about it? I love a lot of things about it. I mean, a friend of mine put it really well relatively recently when I said the body really loves LA like you just feel really good here like the climate is so sort of gentle and like the produce is really good and the pace is much slower and there definitely is a sense of a sort of like existential terror which I mean exists everywhere but especially in a place where there's a lot of like natural disasters that have and could happen But I never really feel that when I'm here. Like, I weirdly feel that more when I'm in New York and people are talking about L.A. and they're like, well, you know, there's no water. (laughs) You're like, oh, yeah, I do know that. (laughs) But when I'm here, that's not really what you're thinking about. Mm, I like that. That makes me think of one of the famous passages from Daughters of the Wasteland, Eve Babbitt's famous essay about being from L.A., in which she talks about how culturally LA has always been what she calls a humid jungle alive with seething LA projects that I guess people from other places just can't see. But then she goes on to say, it takes a certain kind of innocence to like LA. Anyway, it requires a certain plain happiness inside to be happy here. When people are not happy, they fight against LA and say it's a wasteland and other helpful descriptions. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, I mean, I do. I'm also like very aware that even in this conversation, I'm like setting myself up for enormous failure because I am not an expert in LA. I am a recent LA immigrant, I guess. But because of that, I have like a very real enthusiasm and obsession with it to where like I meet people who live other places and I'm like, you got to come to LA. Like you'll have so much fun. You just have to come to LA. Like it's so wonderful. And I do think that is that sort of innocent I don't want to say naive, but it's that type of just like new love, right? Where you sort of overlook all the bad things because you're just so happy. I think that that positions you very well for this conversation. <laughs> okay. Just I'm waiting for commenters to be like, who does she think she is? I've lived here for 50 years. <laughs> Eve Babbitts is going to come back from the dead and say that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't think we'd get along at this point. Really? Yeah. Ooh, tell us. I mean, she she had a um, late in life kind of radicalization is probably the wrong word, but I think she became very, I mean, she had a very difficult late in life period, you know, like she sort of suffered yeah. this terrible accident where she burned herself pretty badly and then kind of became a shut-in, essentially, um, which is when I think Lily Analik found her and got in touch with her, but, and has talked about how she sort of became quite like, I don't know if it was QAnon, but like quite sort of red-pilled in that sense later in her life. Yeah, she definitely became red-pilled. Can I just say also, and this is like, I'm not trying to be glib about her accident because it was clearly horrific. But when you read the description of that accident, it's also one of the most LA things that I've ever heard. (laughs) Like... (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, smoking a cigarillo in your car and wearing like a polyester skirt that like melts. Yes, pretty much. It melts. And Ugg boots. I mean, don't smoke. And the Ugg boots were, yeah, don't smoke. Don't smoke in the car. But also the Ugg boots caught fire. Ugg boots are flammable. And so are polyester skirts, mini skirts. I mean, I'm not, I mean, it was an accident. And one does feel very sorry for her because, and clearly it did change, as you say, the course of her life 
probably not for the better. Well, right. I mean, you think about somebody who really is like fed by being out in the world, right? Like so much of her work is about her being out in the world, experiencing things. And then to be sort of at a forced remove, I think would be really damaging for anybody. And if you want these kind of dreams, it's Californication. This journalist who interviewed her for Los Angeles Magazine mm-hmm. asked a few years before, so she died last year, um, just for context, and a few years prior, so well post-accident, and after she had become kind of rediscovered by Lily Analik, and then all of her books went, the New York Review of of books brought her books back into print. They had been out of print. And she's had this sort of revival, this sort of like millennial revival. Apparently, Emma Roberts and you know has adopted her as a feminist hero. And as somebody was reading a um, an Eve Babbitt's book on apparently, this is according to Lily Analik in Vanity Fair, on the reboot of Gossip Girl, which suggests that she's now fully back into the zeitgeist. So anyway, this journalist asks her, you went from sex drugs and rock and roll to what the New York Times described as a political conservative and supposed MAGA hat owner. What brought this change about and where do you stand now? And her answer is, I never talk about politics. Although I was so happy when my friend Linda Ronstadt was going out with Jerry Brown, (laughs) who was the governor of California at the time. That's her answer, which I love. I mean, that is a good answer. Linda Ronstadt was also incredibly hot if you look up pictures from that time. So, 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 so good. I think her writing, her most famous stuff, there's such a like pleasure-seeking vigor to it, you know? Like she's really such a like young voracious real appetites you know like it's it's the type of thing I think you have to kind of be like young and fun and a little nuts to write you're right she's willing to try everything and and it seems as if none of it is truly corrupting her even though she is doing all of these you know so-called corrupt things you know there's all the sex and drugs and whatever but she's still sort of naive it seems like she's she's taking it all as it comes with gratitude and excitement and yeah a kind of Pleasure well, and you get the sense that even as she is like, this person's crazy, this person's a bad person, whatever, that she genuinely believes in the good in people. Like, that's always sort of what came through to me. Like, or if it's not the good, that they want sort of similar things, which is, you know, to enjoy life and to have fun. Like, yeah, there isn't yeah. that, like, sort of underlying menace that can be in, like, Joan Didion, for example, who is also an incredible writer who I love the work of but is much more sort of menace there's like an undercurrent of like darkness I feel like to everything you know and a sort of like LA looks pretty but everything's poisonous it's a really interesting comparison and obviously we won't be the first people to um to make it but let's let's just take a step back for a second um how did you first come to Eve Babbitt's did you like kind of feel okay I gotta read her because I'm moving to LA or was it had you been following her work for a long time. Like, I admit that I have been a long time Joan Didion fan. And I, it's not that I'd never heard of Eve Babbitt's, like, I definitely had, but I admit I don't think I took her as seriously as a writer. And I maybe wasn't like thinking about her particularly until her, until she sadly passed away last year. Has this been a long time love affair for you? You know, I had a sort of similar pattern. Like, I, 
was much more into Joan Didion, like in school and then after and in my early days, like working at Vogue and places like that, like Joan Didion was definitely much more of a touchstone. And then she did those amazing Celine eyewear ads. And it was like, oh, now everyone's obsessed with Joan Didion, kind of. But it was such a great, such a moment. Yeah, but actually you had like, you had more profound reasons. I mean, you started your career at Vogue or were maybe early on at Vogue, like Joan Didion. You're a East Coast transplant in LA, like Joan Didion. I mean, you guys have lots in common. You've got obviously a great bone structure for sunglasses, like Joan Didion. <laughs> you know, I mean. <laughs> yeah, that's what drew me to her. You wrote Joan Didion's uh, obituary in Vogue, right? Yeah, I did. I actually, I did. I'm a huge Joan Didion fan. I think that she is such a like real, it's hard to say, like on a technical level, it's very hard to beat Joan Didion, right? Like sentence for sentence, line for line. It's just a real skill level there that you're operating with. But to get back to the uh, Eve entree of it all. I don't know if it was like the New York Review of Books re-release or something. Like I'm trying to remember how I first read her. I was definitely in New York. It was pre-moving out here and I was I think I just loved it. I thought it was just fun. It's the exact type of thing that I love to read, you know? Like it's it's enjoyable. It pulls you in. There's a real voice there. There's a real opinion and it felt totally foreign to some like to just be discovering this person I had no idea existed, right? And you're like, "Ugh, I want to hang out with this person." And so I bought as many books as I could, which I think is what happens with everybody, sort of. Um, and then you devour all of them, and then you're sad that you ran out because there's actually not that many. <laughs> yeah, mm. that's true. Have you read the Lily Analick book, Hollywood's Eve? Yes, I have. Okay. So in that book, Analick argues that Eve mainly started writing in reaction to Joan Didion's very popular novel, Play It As It Lays, which takes a cynical, kind of ruthless view of California. And we are wondering whether you see that as being true, whether you think that she was writing in reaction to Joan Didion. I think Lily Analick would know because she definitely did the research around that book, which is terrific. I mean, I can't speak to what motivates anybody to write anything, but I it wouldn't surprise me because I do think as a real LA native, which Eve was, to have somebody who's from Sacramento, which Joan Didion was, <laughs> sort of sweep into town and write the definitive LA novel would maybe be a little, you know, a touch too far. You might want to reclaim some of that ground. Because also, I mean, one could argue that Didion's tone is a little more East Coast, like that, you know, those super polished, refined sentences and that yeah, there's a coldness to her writing, which is part of what's so good about it. Exactly. There's a clinical remove, right? Like Joan Didion is at the party, but she's not of the party. She's famously, you know, sort of trying to be small and inobtrusive and wearing a leotard and a wrap skirt and, you know, like <laughs> not doing the acid, but watching everyone do the acid, which in a party guest, you're kind of like really? You're just going to be there? Like, But she's a journalist, so, you know, we forgive it. Whereas Eve is very much at the party. Yeah, like a bit like Emma, who's on acid right now. Oh, yeah, that would help. Shoot, I didn't think you were going to tell her. I just thought this was my opportunity to really experiment with gonzo journalism. I haven't, I haven't started feeling it yet. We love psychedelics in LA. We're very, we're very (laughs) into that. We're very happy for you.
Alexander, do you agree that, because Analyt kind of asserts that in defending her city, Eve is also on some level sort of defending herself because it's like a rebuttal to Didion's novel, particularly in that people are so determined to believe that something with such obvious superficial charm, so like LA, it's sunny and, you know, your body feels good, as you said. You know, the woman, Eve Babbitt's, especially the young woman, I suppose, was like, had these very obvious superficial charms. But what do you think about that assertion? Do you think that she felt personally attacked? Probably, right? I mean, if you've become really closely associated with something like a city, and then it's being attacked for all a bunch of surface reasons, and maybe your own surface reasons are sort of tied up in that, I think it would be you know, I don't think that would be beyond imagination. Yeah. I also think because Eve and Joan Didion knew each other, you know, like as I think Lily came out with a, um, Lily Analik had a story come out relatively recently about how that relationship was actually much like more deep and intense than anybody kind of knew now that they have this Eve Babbitt's archive that just opened. Um, but there's all sorts of letters and things. Yeah. Huntington College, I think. And yeah, the letters, it's true. The letters do reveal a kind of like intellectual connection. Yeah, for sure. There's a great video on YouTube of Joan Didion being interviewed on some like dreadful local access TV station <laughs> and Eve calls in and is like giggling on the phone and it's pretty incredible. Like you have to watch it. Okay, that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. I want to touch on Eve's relationship to high and low art as well because it's so interesting that she comes from this like super artistic context. Mm-hmm. Her father having been this, you know, violin prodigy and his, you know, Stravinsky was her godfather. There were apparently, according to Analyx, she would like, you know, trip over three geniuses on the way to the living room in her house. And so she kind of grew up in this version of L.A. that could not have been more opposite from the cultural wasteland that snobby New Yorkers apparently describe. And I love the the contrast when she then goes to New York in her own words, to complete her education. So she spends a year in New York. It sounds like much of it is spent on acid. Mm-hmm. Um, she's working for an underground newspaper. She's actually, she's defending LSD uh, in front of like a congressional committee. Like she's living this unbelievably strange <sighs> year in New York. And one of the quotes about it that I love is she wrote this in, in her essay about New York. I met tons of poets in New York. There are none whatsoever in L.A. If anyone in L.A. said they were a poet, everyone would get mildly embarrassed and go look for someone else to talk to. (laughs) So it's like she's like almost trumping like she thinks that New Yorkers think that L.A. is out of, you know, out to lunch and not. But she's she's kind of turning that on its head and saying it's actually New York that's the naive place. Oh, yeah. uh, Where people are willing to admit to being poets. (laughs) Right. And take themselves so seriously. Yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. When I first read like the first few essays in Eve's Hollywood, I was like, especially after the 25,000 pages of dedications (laughs) in which she's like name dropping, but then she's also thanking sour cream Mm -hmm. and it's kind of all over the place. And you're like, is this person joking? And the more you read, you're like, oh, she's completely joking. She's just like completely taking the piss out of all of my assumptions. And, you know, she is very self-aware. And she just has these moments of like complete clarity where her sense of humor and her sense of the absurd, I think, just comes through so strongly. Is she joking, though, on every level? I can't work it out. I mean, I think she's I think she's quite sincere, 
in a lot of it. I think she's a great sense of humor, but I think I think she probably really does appreciate sour cream and her gynecologist and the five thousand other people she lists in those <laughs> um, dedications. You know, like I think that's real. No, I agree that she is sincere. She's she's hyperbolic and sincere at the yeah, same time. Yeah, it's it's tongue in cheek, right? It's like, okay, you want me to list everybody I'm grateful for? This is it. You'll be high, but not for long. If you're a viper, I'm the king of everything. I got to go, got to go, got to go, got to be high before I swing. Let the bells ring, ding, dong, ding. They're showing a lot of florals right now, so I was thinking I could florals do for spring. Groundbreaking. Speaking of hyperbole, Mon, I think you have some fashion choices for us that are a little on the extreme side of things. Okay, so I personally had no idea at first what we should wear because, like, a lot of the depictions of Eve, she's basically completely naked playing chess with Marcel Duchamp. We didn't mention that. We haven't talked about the Marcel Duchamp um, photo shoot, but everyone should go check it out. And it is arguably, actually, let's talk about that for one second because it is arguably what made her, according to Analyk, it was kind of her first big public moment. And, you know, it was an an active choice that she made. I'm going to pose naked with this man and make this statement. We could have a naked dinner. That's true. And it could be quite fun. We could also have, (laughs) if we wanted to go like maybe... Kind of like meet her halfway, but maybe not be completely in the nude. We could wear push-up bras and boas, which she has also been photographed wearing quite a few times. So, and then there's also Eve writing about Vera Stravinsky. You have seen her room full of flowers and her purple satin capes made in Rome with iridescent taffeta to know that it is possible, that anything is possible, that a woman spun out into the finest silks makes the strongest rope. So we love that quote and we could definitely work in some purple satin capes over top of our bras and underwear if we wanted to but I don't know I mean Alessandra what do you think what kind of should we attempt a mini skirt what which which Eve phase do we want to reference I mean always a mini skirt yeah so the thing is like this is a woman who had a terrific body right and she knew it yes. and it's hard to live in LA with a terrific body and not know it I think because that's <laughs> you know it is a place that puts a lot into the surface of things which is neither here nor there I think it's both here and there. (laughs) It's both here and there and everywhere. Um, I mean, she famously wrote Joseph Heller a letter when she was like 16 saying, I'm a writer. I'm a blonde, stacked 16-year-old who lives on Sunset, you know, and got a response. So she knew (laughs) that's one way to get a text back. That said, she did like clothes. I mean, famously, she also is the one who got Steve Martin to wear a white suit. You know, and that sort of like made his image. She definitely understood the power of like costuming and of how, you know, clothes. I mean, I think she got Jim Morrison in his like most famous leather pants. Like she she was clearly somebody who had an eye for style and for fashion and for what would get the message across. I think in her case, that was often very little. But that doesn't mean I think that she would expect everyone to be nude. (laughs) So so I think we could do mini skirts. I would like to wear a leopard print, a full, how about a full body leopard print cat suit? Sure. I mean, I think the message would be wear whatever the hell you want. Like, I don't think, I think she, she had an eye for people who had real personal 
style and taste. And even if it was, you know, in the Diana Reland sense of bad taste is better than no taste. Mm. You know, I think it's like, do it up. I kind of just wanted to wear a bra to dinner though. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to, I'm going to zoom out for a second and just paint the picture of the Marcel Duchamp chess match in case there's someone listening who hasn't seen this image, Google it while I tell this quick story. So 20 year old Eve is in Paris. Her dad has a gig there playing violin. Marilyn Monroe commits suicide. It pushes Eve to the brink of a nervous breakdown. Uh, She says about that, and this is a quote, well, I've never been too stable. She decides that it's time to go home to LA, places a call to her boyfriend, Brian Hutton, who's married. He immediately wires her $500 for a plane ticket. She gets home. It's the fall of 1963. Hutton is putting on a really huge art show in Pasadena, I believe. It's Marcel Duchamp and all the geniuses of the time. And it's this unbelievable Pop art hasn't come to New York yet. Like LA is getting one on New York. Andy Warhol's going to be there. It's like the moment, the show of the moment. And she wants to go to the opening and she's supposed to go to the opening. The only problem is that her boyfriend is married and her boyfriend's wife decides to come home and attend the opening at the last minute. So she's not invited. And this to her is the end of the world. Her sister's there, even her sister Mirandi, and she's at home, like just miserable beyond belief. And so she needs to do something to get back at Hutton. And what she does is the next day she goes to the public opening. She's standing in front of nude descending a staircase, the Duchamp painting, the most famous one. And Julian Wasser, the photographer covering the event, who's like an up and coming photographer, sees her contemplating this and says... I'm going to take a picture of Duchamp and a girl. Do you want to be the girl? And she says, okay. So then apparently Wasser pops open the camera, replaces old film with new and says, playing chess. And after a beat, Eve says, okay, right? Because that's what he gave up art for. And Wasser keeps his eyes on the film, pulls it taut and says, and naked, you, not him. Still in? And she goes, still in. (laughs) She says, have you told Duchamp about this? And he says, as the French would say, no, don't you think you'd better? What if he doesn't like it? And then Wasser, Nikon, back around his neck, starts to walk off on the job again. And he says over his shoulder, he'll like it. What makes you so sure? He's a man, isn't he? And she apparently throws down her glass of wine in one swallow. And then a few days later, she finds herself buck naked playing chess with Marcel Duchamp to get back at the boyfriend. And it works. Mm. So that's just a little sample of the Eve Babbitt's method. Mm. And there's a brief moment of hesitation before she takes off her her robe, isn't there? I mean, she was very young. Her smock, I believe. Yes. She was very young and he gave her, Wasser gave her final cut over the image and she chose one in which her face was hidden behind her hair. Uh Uh-huh. Now, let me just interject for one second, because there's just this really weird situation where my copy of Play It As It Lays by Joan Didion, I don't know if you guys have seen this edition, Uh, I think it's quite a recent one, has this photo on the cover of it. I think I saw you post this on Instagram. Yes, that's crazy. Delphine posted it. She was at my place and I had it out because I was researching for this episode. (laughs) And I was like, and she was like, wait, what? Oh, that's so funny. Like I had it on my coffee table. I wonder how that happened. I don't know. If anyone knows how that happened, fanfarefanmail.com. We want to know. Please call it. Yeah. I mean, it's also just because it doesn't 
have much to do with that book either. You know, no. like that's not really how you think of anybody in that book. But just like as a rights thing. It's mysterious. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it's just like a random licensing. Who knows? Bon appétit. I want to talk about the setting of this dinner party quickly before we get into yes, the food. Yes, sure. Because both are extremely important. Yeah. Okay, good. So in terms of the setting, we know that Eve, like her mother, was a great cook and actually had wonderful dinner parties herself, often with guests sitting on the floor since there were only two lawn chairs in her apartment. That's according to an ex-boyfriend of hers. <laughs> and I didn't know when I was making these plans that you lived in Laurel Canyon, Alessandra. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking that since this is an imaginary dinner party and we can do anything we want, you know, we're not going to try and drag her to Paris because she know we know she said, I could never stand it there. Everyone was too short and too private. <laughs> Amazing line. I think the dinner party has to be in LA. So I was thinking when I lived there for six months, we had this little apartment on Waverly Drive in Silver Lake. And it was high up. We also had one of those outdoor staircases. And so it kind of felt like you were in a tree house. And I think she might appreciate the fact that Waverly Drive was the site of one of the Manson murders. It would certainly provide fodder for conversation. Mm -hmm. I didn't like that as much while I was living there. It definitely scared me um, silly, especially late at night because there was this big window and I felt like everyone could see in if I had any lights on at night. And so it really scared me at the time. But... We know that Eve Babbitts was not only a former high school classmate of Gypsy from the Manson family, but also had bummer Bobby, Bobby Beausoleil, living with her for a week. And they all nicknamed him Bummer Bobby, and he brought his dog, and he wore a sign that said, I am Bummer Bob. And she says, I'd let him stay, but hadn't slept with him because anyone who has themselves called that, I figured, must have the clap or some other expensive social disease. <sighs> and anyway, so he sent a Christmas card from death row and was unfortunately part of that terrifying group. So I think if we were in that setting, she might open up. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think a... Um... A historical house is always fun if there's a little, it's a nice conversation starter, I guess. And we've got enough distance now from the terrible Manson murders that I think it's safe to talk about in mixed company. Yeah, I mean, I am partial to Laurel Canyon over Silver Lake myself because I do live here and also it does have, it's more central, let's say. And so for like Eve's purposes, you can get to a place like Dantana's really quite quickly, which she was a big fan of. I mean, I love Dantana's, but Lord knows the food must have been better then because it is not good now. But they will tell you that when you walk in. So it's fine. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Well, if you'd be willing to have us at yours, I would definitely be keen to oh, see. Oh, that'd be great. Oh, yes. I'm happy to host. Of course. She, she can tell me if Jim actually did fall down the stairs or if that's just total... Yes. Amazing. Okay, good. Okay. Well, so I know that another one of her favorite restaurants was the Luau, which she calls a tacky Polynesian restaurant that was Stravinsky's favorite. Only children like it. <laughs> um, and that she was really into this drink called a vicious virgin. <laughs> Have you guys ever heard of this? No. No. So it's multiple different types of rum some light, some dark, plus brandy, and apparently, according to recipes I found online, triple sec, lime juice, something called fulnerum syrup, and hers was always garnished with a gardenia. 
I mean, sounds terrific, frankly. (laughs) I had a pina colada recently, and I was like, for the first time in a long time, and now it's like kind of all I want to drink. (laughs) So I understand. (laughs) A boozy milkshake, basically. Like, come on. Yeah, basically. I mean, what's not to love? That's amazing. Okay, so we can have a whole array of tropical drinks. Yeah, we can have like a tiki night. A tiki night with all different flowers adorning them and umbrellas and all of that good stuff. If Eve wants to call her drug dealer, that's her business. (laughs) I mean, her drug dealer would definitely probably know the house. So, you know, far far before when we lived here. So, yeah, might be his old house. True. It'll be a nice uh, homecoming. Oh, my gosh. I was just about to class it up. So now's a good time. (laughs) She... I'm going to mispronounce this violinist's name, but there was this amazing violinist called Joseph Segetti, mm-hmm. S-Z-I. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but anyway, she ate fresh figs for the first time at his house. Before then, I would never eat figs because I thought they were vile threats to happiness, she wrote, but she ended up loving it and it was served with cold white wine and just the right type of crystal glass. And so I think some fresh figs as the appetizer would bring her back to that moment and perhaps with a kind of Gruyere puff appetizer, because she talks about this one horrific dinner that she had with someone she keeps referring to as her connection, which I think must have been Earl McGrath. And she says she took them to the fanciest restaurant she knew of that had these Gruyere puff appetizers that were neither the best thing nor the worst thing. Um, So I think she would appreciate the reference anyway, and it might go well with the figs. I mean, that sounds delicious. Yeah. But for the main course, there's only one thing that we can have. Can you guess what it is? I don't know. Okay. I'm going to tell you. It's taquitos. Oh. So she writes about how she really thinks that she's a Roman at heart. She spent six months in Rome when she was in her 20s, and she truly believes that she is, she's a Roman, and that all LAs, all true LAs are Romans, and that there's a real affiliation between the two cities. But the only reason she came back from, she actually was supposed to stay in Rome for a year, but she came back early because she was dying without chili. Hmm. <laughs> There's chili in her blood. Her mother um, apparently was an amazing cook and, you know, brought some of that like Texas Cajun cooking into their home life. And there was this one place that she used to go to that I have to read you, read to you about from her essay on the subject because it's really, she's just so like, she's so all in when she writes about food, which I love. She loved MFK Fisher. And so do I. Me too. Another all in food writer. Yeah. So, so good. Okay. So she goes... (laughs) This kills me. So she wants us to go to a place on the northeast part of Olvera Street. Here you can pull up and have a friend jump out and run over to the guys with money already out of your wallet and yell, Ocho taquitos. Eight, the guy says, your accent isn't good enough for him to go along with it, and he's not going to give you the satisfaction. Yeah, ocho, okay? Okay, ocho. He changes his mind and gives you the meat. And then she goes into the fact that carnitas for taquitos are Mexican beef pieces of such loveliness and unimaginable perfection that I really can't tell you about it except to say that once in a time of blind dismissal of fitness, I bought two pounds in a Mexican butcher shop down past the railroad tracks. I took it to a man and when they told me the price, $5, paid in silence as I watched them wrap and had eaten the whole thing out of the paper from the front seat of my car before I could get back to my apartment for a plate or a fork. Girl after my own heart. I love it. Yeah. 
I love it so, so much. And then it gets better. So the sauce is where heaven enters into it. It is better than anything. Maybe somewhere else in the world, there is something equal to that sauce, but I myself have never tasted anything nearly as wonderful. With a sauce like that, I could eat my own father, is an old quote my friend Diana Gold (laughs) (laughs) discovered and put on the front of her screenplay about food. That's the kind of sauce it is. You could eat your own father. (laughs) I mean, how can you not love this person? I'm just obsessed with her as a food writer. Like, I feel like there's this entire other side to you. Yes, for sure. I mean, she's actually like a really good travel writer. You know, which is something like I have great respect for and do periodically. And it's like one of my favorite things to do and to write about. Like she's wonderful at capturing a place and the feeling you have there and what it's like to, you know, have a freaking amazing taquito where you're like, I'm going to eat all of these immediately (laughs) and like tell everyone about it. You know, like it's she's really wonderful at that. It's just so full of like life. She is. She's wonderful at experiencing pleasure and capturing it. Yes. Yeah. And at being unabashed, which I think is another part of, you know, and she's so, the commitment level is just 10 out of 10. Mm -hmm. This is another one of her convictions. She says, buying raw taquitos and taking them home and doing them yourself is a sacrilege against the nature of the universe. And you will have to account for the impropriety on judgment day with everyone watching. The guys must cook them for you then and there. Otherwise, you're a Philistine. I buy it. We have to go there. Yeah. I hope it's still there. She gives directions and draws a map. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll go look. Is there anything else, Alessandra, that you think we should be like, that we're leaving out, that we're forgetting? And if not food, maybe we want to add some extra guests? I don't know. Or do we want to keep it intimate? Yeah, I mean, the guest list could be pretty wide ranging if you think about it. I mean, she was somebody who knew everybody, it really feels like, you know, and dated many of them. <laughs> You've got the the Harrison Ford of it all, like the young Harrison Ford when he was just like a carpenter in Malibu, which is right. kind of amazing. Yeah. Weirdly, we talked about this on our Joan Didion episode. He was, in fact, oh, a yes. carpenter. We talked about it in the Joan Didion episode, but we didn't get the Eve Babbitt's version, which is right. that he was a terrible carpenter. Oh, he yeah. never finished their deck, and their deck was not even, like, you know, remotely serviceable, and that he was a much better drug dealer than he was yes. carpenter. Yes. And, much, and probably know. even better as an actor. I'm really glad that he yeah. <laughs> Yes, let's hope. Yes. I mean, she was friends with everybody. She was friends with yeah. Paul and Ed Ruscha. She was friends with Jim Morrison. Although then you sometimes – there was someone else's essay about – I think it was her ex-boyfriend running into Jim Morrison with Eve and he looked like terrified and sort of ran away into the chateau, which is kind of an amazing <sighs> Okay, this is Dan Wakefield. I'm so glad you brought this up, Alessandra. So he wrote this great essay that we'll link to in the show notes about his year with Eve, which he calls the best year of his life. And he reads it aloud on a podcast. Oh, and great. we are going to insert a clip in which he talks about this moment when he woke up to hear Eve discussing the size of his privates relative to Jim Morrison's because it's one of the funniest things. (laughs) Yes. Okay, take it away, Dan Wakefield. Eve always woke before me and was often on the phone, sometimes talking to girlfriends with uncensored intimacy. As I lay beside Eve one morning with closed eyes and open ears, I heard her defending me. I was not a rock star. That was okay. Jim was too big. It hurt. 
Kim Morrison of the Doors. What was so big it hurt? Well, she said, this is nice for a change. Nice? I was not asleep anymore. My most private part, private no more, was now the subject of discussion between two of the most desirable women in the city of the most desired women in the world, and I was coming off second best. It sounded like a distant second best. got like the Mick Jagger and Jack Nicholson of it all and like ugh, I mean I love Jack Nicholson still then and now me too um, and like Steve Martin I mean there's lots and all of these people by the way who you know came together after her accident and really like raised a lot of money for her and for her care which I think is pretty incredible and speaks to you know her as a human beyond just being like a sexy fun time right like they actually really cared about and respected her that's a really good point absolutely Yeah, which is, you know, because I think it can be very easy to dismiss somebody like this, right? Because she's like sort of written off even when she was writing as being kind of a, you know, good time party girl, not to be taken seriously, which worked to her benefit because she probably got into a lot of rooms she might not have been allowed Mm. into if she was a more, you know, rigorous academic type. But, you know, she wasn't seen as a threat. She was part of the game, part of the part of the time. The dowager groupie. Right. Oof. I mean. As um, John Dunn referred to her once, which is very mean. That's not very kind, frankly, but yes. It's not very kind, but at the same time, the groupie, you know, she called herself a groupie. Do you think that was a disguise? I think the dowager part is what's offensive there. Yes, I agree. Um, Yes. Uh, Do I think it was a disguise? No, I think that was, I think you can be multiple things, right? Like, I think she got that better than anybody that she's like yeah like I love my body I like to have sex I like to hear music I like rock stars I like LA I like all these things but I'm also you know a hell of a great writer yeah yeah I think potentially the only part of it that was a disguise was that she was such a I think she was such a connoisseur of music and she really didn't have a lot of time for like the doors for example she didn't think they were very good there were certain musicians of the era who she had a huge amount of time for including Linda Ronstadt and you know some rock and roll she thought was truly brilliant but I think a lot of it she thought didn't necessarily stand up to what her dad was playing uh, in the living room of their house. Fair enough although I'm a little offended about the doors I mean Mm. I'm I'm not a huge doors fan myself I do think um no, I mean, you know, I, I think her take on Jim Morrison is probably pretty accurate in that, like, mm. he was a little embarrassing, but he was also very cute, you know? Yeah. Like he, he was a little, a little <laughs> out there, but it was also, you know, she couldn't resist it. And neither could many people. No. Okay, so we've got we've got a pretty gr- good um, group of people coming. Oh, um, Emma, was there anyone you wanted to add? Maybe. Uh... Yes, I think. Well, just because we have a lot of the same idols, I think it would be yeah. fun for 
everyone if MFK Fisher were there. Oh, sure. And Colette. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And bizarrely, she loves Proust. She goes on to say that she would recommend Proust to anyone in solitary confinement (laughs) because you can't read Proust at the laundromat, which I think is amazing. But I think she and Marcel would have a lot to talk about. Despite his short and Frenchness. (laughs) I mean, I'm still thinking about that, too. That's pretty incredible. Too short and too private. (laughs) Yeah, he wasn't private. She could be so scathing. What about Virginia Woolf? And Virginia Woolf. She loved Virginia Woolf. I'm, I'm going to say we got a lot of stiff ladies and fun guys at this dinner. It's going to be a little, it's gonna be a little weird. <laughs> She'll be the, like, the chill one. Yeah, that's true. She might love that. True. Okay, what music should we play? Because obviously she knows what's up. So her dad had a collection of Dixieland records that she loved. Okay. Her dad also used to jam with Steph Smith and Nat King Cole at a bar across the street from NBC on Sunset and Vine, where he was a studio musician. So I think, you know, that kind of stuff, like there's going to be some rock and roll inevitably. Okay, but be careful. I think we start there. We could do the um, albums that she did the cover art for. Oh, Oh, yes. Buffalo Springfield. Yeah, that could be like a fun theme. That is a good point. She kind of talked her way into that one as well, didn't she, when she was very young? Yeah, but they're quite cool if you ever look at them, you know, like they're, she did a great job. Yeah, no, they are. They are really cool. Per our feminist chat earlier, Lily Analik sort of makes the point that she wasn't taken seriously as an artist by any of the male artists she hung out with initially. This is pre-rock and roll. Like she used to go to Barney's Beanery and hang out with all of the artists. And she was, she was calling herself an artist and they were looking at her chest and laughing at her. And the idea of her being an artist was just completely unacceptable. Have you ever been to Barney's Beanery? I have not. I have not. Have you? Yes, I have. It's very close to my house. I went recently with a friend because I'd read about it a few times. And you see the sign and it's this great, you know, still sort of 70s looking big sign. And it is the most comforting dive bar still. Like you walk in and it has that college dive bar smell, like stale beer. Yeah. And like, oh my gosh. It, it's, but it's weirdly... <laughs> I hadn't smelled that in so long that I walked in and I was like, oh, I know this place. Allegedly, Janis Joplin had her last meal there, which is interesting. I can't imagine what it was because I don't think the food is. Oh, my gosh. You just triggered a memory, which is that the whole essay about the taquitos started with somebody made a quip. Janis Joplin OD'd in L.A. because she was alone on a Sunday in L.A. And what else was there to do? Mm. And Eve, that's her entry point into this essay. She goes, here's what she should have done gotten taquitos uh, yes. <laughs> and then she spent the entire essay it's true she shouldn't have gone to barney's beanery by herself that is very sad actually Maybe. oh no i know what a time but yeah when you guys are next in la we'll all go okay amazing i feel like this is really coming together she was dismissed because of the way she looked but she really was in earnest and in temperament an artist and it seems like the way to break into that was to be like okay fine you want to see me as a sex object fine I will also be a sex object but I'm going to be both an artist and a sex object I think that makes sense right like she what is she gonna do I mean this is someone that we can see through her writing really enjoys you know physical pleasure really enjoys her body is she supposed to not do that so that people think that she's smarter you know like She's plenty smart. She doesn't need to do any of that. 
But yeah, I mean, look, I do think that she was written off for years and years and years, especially when she was really young and writing as just being kind of flimsy, right? And people weren't really seeing all the excellence in what she was putting out. So it's it's tricky. I think I think people still struggle with this, right? People are you definitely have to be aware unfortunately of the way people see you. And I think back to the Joan Didion thing for a second. Joan was obviously so aware of the way people saw her and that's one of the critiques that Lily Analick puts forward about Joan Didion is that she, you know, kind of acted as if she was being super authentic in her writing but in fact there were so many layers to it and it was such a like conscious self-creation that she was participating in. But then you mentioned the letters between Eve and Joan that Lily wrote about in Vanity Fair. And I just found a passage in one where she's writing to Joan and she says, could you write what you write if you weren't so tiny, Joan? Mm. Would the balance of power between you and John have collapsed long ago if it weren't that he regards you a lot of the time as a child? So it's all right that you're famous and you yourself keep making it more all right because you're always referring to your size. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, look, as a five foot 10 woman (laughs) who had lots of tiny girlfriends growing up who were always like, you know, making a point of their tininess, I I do understand that that feeling that it might be one sided, right? But it's that like, I think there is a certain type of person who likes to draw attention to their like, I mean, it's very feminine, right? To be like small and frail and, Mm. you know, sort of need protecting in in that way. And if you're somebody... Right, unthreatening. Yes. And if you're someone who's big and takes up a lot of room, maybe not big, but you know what I mean? Like you're just physically Mm. larger or you suck up more of the air in the room because you're that type of personality it can seem a little bit of an eye roll, right? To be like, oh, you really, you're always cold, you know, like that type of, you know. But yeah, that's a Maybe little twisting. Maybe you should move to LA. Yeah, that's a little <sighs> twisting the knife, I think, to be like your husband, to to bring up the, the John Dunn of it all. It's not the most polite letter I've ever read. No, no, no. <laughs> Let's give our last thoughts and conclusions on... Eve Babbitts before she arrives because we're not going to be able to talk about her when she gets here. Or or maybe we are, but in a different context. I feel like we could. (laughs) I feel like we could. I feel like she'd be fine with talking about herself. (laughs) Probably right, actually. I just think that it is so incredibly great that people have discovered her work and are enjoying it and that it's become such a thing. Like that makes me really happy. I think that we've had such a tough time few years not to bring like the COVID of it all into it but to read somebody who's so unabashed about pleasure and that sort of like decadence it just kind of feels right like yeah we should all be like enjoying our lives and you know if you meet a rock star why not spend as much time with them as you can I'm not saying you should you know sleep with a rock star but if the opportunity arises I wouldn't judge why not why not I mean it's kind of the like You only go around this world once, you know? Enjoy it. Amen. She obviously has plenty of brains, as you talked about, but her writing, the brains are kind of just a given, and it's the body and the heart that she kind of leans on in her writing. Like she, you know, you feel feel a lot of heart, or I do anyway, as well as that vicarious pleasure of discovering all the things that she's discovering. And you're right. I think she makes a great icon for the new Roaring Twenties, the Roaring Twenty Twenties, as everyone's calling it. You know, <laughs> she's sort of this, uh, this, this emblem of um, of indulgence in a good way. Oh 
Oh, yeah. And, like, don't get me wrong. She might be a terrible dinner guest, you know? Like, she might, like, leave in the middle to go, like, screw your boyfriend. But... Right. No, no, no. Apparently, apparently, the one rule that she had was no friends, lovers, or ex-lovers. It was like a code among thieves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll (laughs) see. So not knowingly, anyway. We'll see. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that must have gotten harder to navigate after a certain point. (laughs) I know. I feel like it's she wasn't a real rules girl, but you never know. You never know. I do have a good plan for dessert. I just want to get your approval on this, just to cool us off in case things get really heated with, I don't know, Virginia Woolf, for example. Uh, (laughs) A snow cone bar. Ooh. She loved the snow cones at Roadside Beach during her surfer girl phase when she was skipping school to go work on her tan. So I was thinking we could have a full snow cone bar and just cool right down. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. I, I would love to see Virginia Woolf with a snow cone. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I mean, I'm in. This is one for the books for sure. I feel ready. Cleanup's going to be a nightmare, but we'll deal with that tomorrow. Hold on. Is that her Volkswagen bug? Coming up the canyon. Ooh, action stations. Thank you so, so much, Alessandra. This has been really fun. I discovered her for the first time, thanks to you. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you so much for having me. This was so, so fun. Fanfare is brought to you by one of my all-time favorite shopping destinations, Matches Fashion. Discover the new season at MatchesFashion.com. The Matches Fashion app one of the most addictive apps on my phone, I don't know about you, or in person at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in Mayfair, London. Connecting the physical and digital, 5 Carlos Place aims to create a community among customers. Discover their curation of new designers and collaborations on the retail floors. Shop their full online edit via iPad and try on within 90 minutes. And interact with QR codes via your smartphone to discover content that brings the house to life. With luxury shopping suites, you can also schedule completely bespoke appointments with space to select your favorite pieces with the help of the Matches Fashion private shopping team. And as the permanent residency of their event series, Five Carlos Place plays host to cocktails, dinners, workshops, and much more. Find out what's on at MatchesFashion.com. Well, that was a rush. Sure was. If you have thoughts, feelings, comments, questions, uh, answers to our queries, uh, please email us at any time about anything on fanfarefanmail at gmail.com. Thank you very much to our producers, Matt Bentley-Viney and Joel Grove. See you next time. Bye-bye. That's all.